Those of you at home, if you have a Bible, would you now please open it to Acts chapter 2. And today we get to look at the watershed event of Pentecost. And um, one of the things that I continue to learn as I expound the scriptures over the years is how critical it is to know the Old Testament in order to understand the New Testament. Uh, much of the New Testament is fulfillment of promises and prophecies in the Old Testament, and Pentecost is certainly that in many ways, and I will point out as much of that as I can during our time together. But I have so looked forward to arriving at Pentecost. We took about 10 days, uh, like the disciples had to wait, but the coming of the Spirit is the great theme of Pentecost. Uh, the coming of the Spirit in its new covenant outpouring. And this is what we will see. Hear now the word of the Lord as I read for us verses 1 through 13 of chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly... There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold the wondrous truth of your word. And may that truth penetrate our defenses. May it reshape, may it reprogram how we see and understand you, ourselves, and the world we live in, and our responsibilities before you as your people. And as we hear your word today, we pray that you would prosper it, that it would bring forth fruit, and that fruit would redound to your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a question for you. Would you recognize a spirit-filled church if you met one? How could you tell? How would you measure what a spirit-filled church looked like? 
And how would you measure whether or not it was real? How could you tell? Would it have to do with how many decibels the music had? Or how much lighting was used? Or how much singing and clapping uh, in time together? Or hands held high waving in praise? Or rowdy joy? Or is the spirit sensed more in silence of meditation in a sanctuary, a liturgy rich in reverence and reflection? Well, on the day of Pentecost, there was an amazing thing. There was a, quite an event that shook the place and shook everyone up. And so the Holy Spirit, as we all know, is indispensable for the Christian life and ministry in a number of ways. The Bible tells us in Romans 5 that the love of God is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that we become aware of our sonship and our heirship uh, with Christ by the ministry of the Holy Spirit who causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. We become Christians in the first place by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification occurs in us because the Holy Spirit indwells us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He indwells us. He penetrates our being. He lives within us. So in Acts chapter 2, Luke is greatly concerned to show how the Jerusalem Pentecost was foundational and determinative for the growth of Christianity as a whole. And so the first paragraph of chapter 2 sort of outlines the unique supernatural occurrences of that particular day, that is the day of Pentecost. And then in the next verses, 5 through 13, uh, they are devoted to the places represented by those who witnessed this event, describing, as it were, their reactions. So there are three things that I want you to see this morning regarding the day of Pentecost. And those three things are, first, we want to see what Pentecost is, where it came from, what its roots are. And we're going to talk about the festival of Pentecost because it has a lot to do with what we see here. Secondly, we're going to look at the event of Pentecost itself. What happened? And then thirdly, we're going to look at the reaction to Pentecost by those who witnessed and experienced it and saw the results of it. So let's start first by looking at Pentecost. Literally, the text says in the original language, when the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled. Here we have a new stage in the outworking of God's purposes. God has a plan. We understand that. We know that. And God is working his plan. And this is one of the major redemptive historical events we find in Scripture. And because of that, it is unique. It is a once one-time ultimate experience of this outpouring of the new covenant gift of the Holy Spirit and the new creation impinging upon the old. And so the Jewish festival, known in Greek as Pentecost, which literally means 50th, is the same as the Feast of Weeks in Leviticus 23. This was celebrated with sacrifices and feasting. Seven weeks and a day after the first fruits of the grain harvest had been offered. 
It was one of three great agricultural festivals held annually to acknowledge God's goodness in the cycle of seasons and fruitfulness of the earth. And so the Old Testament tells us 50 days from Passover with God's renewal of the covenant uh, of, with his people. And it had a connection to, which I will mention more later, to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai and the coming of the Spirit on Pentecost have much mirror effect with one another. And so there's a connection there. And so Jesus reinterprets Passover, as you know, uh, in his discussion of the Lord's Supper in Luke's Gospel to signify the inauguration of the new covenant. This blood is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus says. And so his uh, new relationship, reconstituted, uh, reinterpreted relationship with Israel is experienced 50 days later. And so through the gift of the Spirit, as a result, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, now comes the Spirit as they were all together in one place. The 120 who were in the upper room praying are together in one place. Now, we don't know where that place was. Some people think it's still the upper room. Others think it was more public than that, perhaps in the temple courts around where the Gentiles were normally allowed to gather. At least we do know this, wherever it happened, the effects of it made it to the street and ultimately a loud, large crowd gathered and watched it. And so that's what Pentecost is in terms of background. But Pentecost, as we see in verse 2, tells us that there was suddenly from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So they were seated in some kind of house, could have been the upper room, that's what I tend to think. And on this occasion, there was a sudden, unique, supernatural event. In the foundational experience of Pentecost, audible signs were accompanied by visual phenomena. Now, there was not actually wind, but there was the sound of rushing wind. But it sounded like wind, and echoes filled the room. And wind in Scripture, as we know, is often a metaphor or an emblem for the Holy Spirit. As you know, in the book of Genesis, it tells us in the creation story, uh, God created, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit... And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And then the Spirit, it tells us in verse 3, is hovering over the chaos of creation, ready to engineer or bring, as it were, order out of the chaos, which is followed by creation by divine fiat, the Word, over the next six days. But the Spirit hovering here is the, Greek, uh, the Hebrew word ruach. Ruach, and ruach always means breath, or it means wind, or it means spirit. Uh, later on in Genesis, we're told, and God breathed into the man and gave him the breath of the life. That is ruach. And so, in the beginning, in creation, the spirit, in the form of wind, accomplished what? The very creative act. Of course, we see this all over Scripture, um, as a metaphor for the work 
of God's uh, Spirit. Wind in Scripture is an emblem of God's creative breath. And this is a sign that God was about to accomplish a mighty work of renewal. They were about to experience, in many ways, God's awesome presence. And they were about to be empowered for ministry. And they were about to be moved out to speak of the very wonders of God. We see this concept of wind all through the Old Testament. A couple of places that I want to talk about it. It actually accompanied the exodus and the passing through the Red Sea. But it also uh, happened in Ezekiel's prophecy where Ezekiel prophesies about the valley of dry bones and how the wind blew through that valley and those bones became enfleshed and became people. So it's all pointing to the reality that the Spirit and the mighty presence of God has now appeared on the stage to accomplish great things and great wonders. And so all throughout the Bible we see, especially in the Old Testament, for example, one more and I'll let you, I'll, I'll stop because I could go on for a long time. But remember Elijah and remember how Elijah was taken up into heaven and it says when he left, he left with wind and fire, which we're going to see in a moment, and was taken up into heaven. And a double portion of his, the spirit upon him was given to Elisha, the prophet that followed him and he did twice as many miracles. But again, the concept of wind tells us the sound of the mighty rushing wind was a big blinking signal to say the day of the Lord has arrived in the sense of the Spirit fulfilling Joel's prophecy in chapter 2 being poured out upon the earth. And so that was the sound of the wind and why it's described that particular way. But there was also another amazing thing happened. And the other amazing thing happened happened in verse 3. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And so what appeared to be tongues, tongues as of fire. Of course, fire is another major symbol of God's presence in Scripture. And it's always associated with two things. One is purgation or purging and purifying, and the other is judgment. In Exodus chapter 19, when uh, Moses was given the law of God, the Mount Sinai itself shook and was covered with fire and smoke. Um, again, there are other uh, instances in the Old Testament. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And the Shekinah glory cloud coming into the tabernacle and the temple was as if it was fire. John the Baptist tells, me, tells us that when Messiah comes, he will baptize repentant Israel uh, both with fire and with spirit. And in uh, connection with John's preaching of in, imminent judgment and wrath, uh, pointing to the one purgative event of messianic judgment in which both the repentant and unrepentant would experience one a blessing and the latter as destruction. And so fire 
Uh, in the book of Exodus, also in the book of Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire, symbolizes the presence of the Holy One who is there to communicate with His people to guide them. And so the Pentecostal gift is God's empowering presence with His people in a new and distinctive way, revealing His will and leading His people to fulfill His purposes for them in terms of the new covenant. And so the tongues of fire, it tells us here in the passage, separate and come to rest on each people. There wasn't just a baptism of the Spirit upon the church corporately here, but there was also individual baptism represented here, or filling, in which the people of God all received, as it were, the Spirit of God, came to rest upon each one of them. Uh, each individual member of the believing community was not only baptized into Christ, but connected to one another by the Spirit. Which is why uh, I always I was praying this morning with Pam as we were coming in the car, and I said I really miss. I was telling the Lord I really miss our corporate worship because the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. When we come together and worship as God's people, there is an outpouring of the Spirit. There is an experience of the Spirit that is beyond individual and personal. And that is exactly what we see here. These people are being empowered for a purpose, and specifically for inspired utterance. Tongues here, and listen to me carefully, are known languages. How do I know that? I know that because people listed, as we continue reading the passage, from other parts of the world who spoke different languages. We're not talking about uh, Hebrew here. We're not talking about um, Greek or Aramaic. What we're talking about here is each person heard their native language that they spoke. And these were Galileans, by the way, and Galileans were sort of low upon the totem pole in every way of people. Apparently, their speech patterns were awful. Uh, they had trouble with gutturals, and it, it, they tended to drop off letters at the end of whatever they were speaking. Kind of mumbling, I guess. I don't know exactly how to describe it. But to see these Galileans, that had to be a huge signal that, whoa, something is up. Something is happening here. And so this language is recognized as a miracle of speech. There was no need for any interpretation. The tongues here are different than the gift of tongues mentioned in Paul's letter to Corinth in chapters 12 through 14. It's a different thing. Here they are known languages. We'll talk about why more in a moment. But the people were em empowered to bear testimony to the nations. Uh, not preaching per se, but declaring the wonders of God. Bold gospel wonders about Christ's death, burial, resurrection, ascension, session at the right hand. And they were filled with ejaculations of praise. That's what was going on. That's how it happened uh, as they experienced it. And so this tongues of fire were for the purpose of communicating to the people. And they provide quite a picture. And so what, the bewildered, what bewildered the gathering crowd was the fact that each one heard their own language being spoken. 
Each one of them heard speaking in his own language. Jews from the east would have known Aramaic. Jews from the west, being Hellenistic, would have known Greek. But what they heard was in their native language, our local dialect can have either meaning. For one brief moment of time, the divisions in humanity expressed through different languages were overcome. The children's Sunday school class recently was on Babel, the Tower of Babel. These divisions are presented in Genesis as the judgment of God. What happened on the day of Pentecost suggests that God's curse is being removed. Uh, but the confusions of tongues was not undone by providing a common spirit language. Communication actually took place through the diversity of languages represented here. Now, how can we make any kind of application off of this? Or is there any uh, application? And I think there is. The unique phenomenon of Pentecost shows us that in some ways it was unique and unrepeatable. Jesus gave his spirit to his church on that day as the newly ascended Lord. Now he proceeds to minister in the world through his spirit-filled church. Perhaps we can even say that on that day the church was baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus had promised in Acts 1-5 that Pentecost would be a spirit baptism. On that day it says they were filled with the spirit. But then repeatable series of spirit-filled experiences are not called spirit baptisms. Rather, the baptism of the spirit was the once and for all inauguration into a new realm of spiritual experience. And so we see that the church was empowered that day to preach the message of the gospel in an understandable way. Which tells me that when we come together as God's people today and we worship today, our goal is to worship in an understandable way. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 14, that if the people uh, uh, witness our worship, our doxology as it were, our praise before God, some will be struck by it and see the reality of God among us but our worship must be understandable. It must be, that's one of the great principles of evangelism and moving forward with the church. And sometimes in our tradition, our churches get just a little bit uh, disconnected with people. And I may be guilty of this by speaking churchese or theological language that people don't understand. While Jesus could have wowed any of us, his conversation with people was to the point and simple and illustrated and easy to understand. And if we're going to be a, a church for others, we're going to be a church for a mission, we have got to make one of our priorities in all of our doings before the nations understandable, able to be heard and seen uh, in a common way. Well... The expression, each in his own language, uh, was amazing here. Uh, co communication took place through a diversity of languages representing here. God was expressing his ultimate intention 
on the day of Pentecost to unite people from every tribe and language and people and nation under the rule of his son, providing reconciliation through him and access to the Father by the one spirit. So the expression each in his own language is repeated from verse 6 and verse 7 to emphasize the nature of the miracle from the viewpoint of, this, uh, of the witnesses. Uh, but the narrator's description of their confusion in verse 6 is in, replaced in verse 7 by the words amazed and astonished. The questions which come from the crowd outline their perception of what was going on and encourage readers to share in this amazement. God did something at Pentecost that defied rational explanation. And the appropriate response to it was praise and adoration. And the questions of the crowd almost appear in a choral form as a literary device to highlight what was being articulated by many individually. People were marveling that Galileans were not inhibited by their own distinctive manner of speech from communicating in other languages. The wonder of this occasion in verses 9 through 11 is further stressed by listing places from which the audience was drawn. And I do want to take a moment to look at this because it's important in understanding the nature of the book of Acts. Only 15 countries are mentioned in, uh, to support Luke's claim that there were Jews from every nation under heaven. But these 15 nations uh, broadly represent the extent of the Jewish dispersion at that time. Three nationalities are mentioned first. Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, corresponding to an area in the east of the Roman Empire that we know today as Iran. With a change of construction in the Greek, Luke moves westward to include residents of Mesopotamia, modern Iraq and Judea. Next comes the regions that figure so prominently in Acts chapter 13 through Acts chapter 20, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia. Moving south to North Africa, Luke mentions Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome receive special mention, and these are further defined as both Jews and converts to Judaism, that is proselytes, many Jews lived in the imperial capital of Rome at that time, and perhaps some of the visitors present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost were there for the Pentecost festival and returned with the gospel and formed the nucleus of the church in Rome. The whole point of this list is to stress again the miracle they are witnessing. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own language. What the disciples were actually celebrating in these other languages with their spirit-inspired praise was the mighty things of God. From Peter's sermon, which we will look at next week, we may judge that this included affirmations about Jesus and his exaltation, as well as thanksgiving for the gift of the Spirit. But such speech cannot simply be identified as missiological proclamation. Clearly, clearly, 
There was a missiological implication of their praise, but it was not the primary function. And so Luke makes clear that all who heard the praises of God in their own language were amazed and perplexed. They could not grasp what they saw going on. So they kept asking one another, what does this mean? Some, hearing their own language spoken by one disciple and various other languages being spoken by the rest, made fun of them, mocked them, sneered. They dismissed the disciples as having too much wine, that is, new sweet wine. This is a reminder that the miraculous is not self-authenticating, nor does it inevitably and uniformly convince anyone. There must also be the preparation of the heart and the proclamation of the message if miracles are to accomplish their full purpose. This was true for even the miracle of the Spirit's coming at Pentecost. Such puzzlement and misunderstanding cries out for explanation, which we will see next Sunday as Peter gives us his sermon, which is an interpretation of that event. One of the things that I think is significant also in this, as we look at it more uh, carefully, is that Pentecost means that the unity of the Spirit transcends all racial, racial, national, linguistic barriers. Again, for centuries, commentators have noted that Acts 2 is a reversal of the curse of Babel. Acts 2 provides a table of nations, as does Genesis 10. But in Acts 2, a miracle of blessing brings people together through understanding despite linguistic barriers. While in Genesis 11, a miracle of cursing breaks people apart through division despite original linguistic sameness. In Genesis 11, the people of the earth unite to make a name for themselves. And that leads to disunity of racial and cultural alienation. In Acts 2, when people unite to call on the name of the Lord, the result is racial and cultural healing. And I submit to you that is the only way racial and cultural healing will ever take place. It's through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, you've listened so fast today, I'm almost through. This is going to be a record, isn't it? Or did I start early? I don't, I don't know. I may have to get into Peter's sermon because we're getting done. Only kidding. Now, God's law to the nations at Sinai is, is something that I want to conclude with. Number one, the sign, like the wind and the flaming tongues probably alludes to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Rabbinical tradition held this, listen carefully, every word which came from the mouth of the Almighty in the giving of the law was divided into 70 tongues so that Gentiles who were traveling with Israelites might hear and understand the Torah clearly for themselves. Although this thought is not explicit, in the Pentateuch, it is likely that the sign of languages at Pentecost is God's eschatological answer to this tradition which glorified the Torah. Although the law was given to Moses 
And it was indeed a revelation of God's righteousness to all people. The divine word that will bring the Gentiles under his saving rule is not the law. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. So at Pentecost, we see, because of the gift of the Spirit, the movement away from a Torah-centered existence, by the way, which many people still live in the church, to a Christ-centered existence. The Spirit came to point us to Christ, to glorify Him, to make Him real to us. And so in reality, on the day of Pentecost, what we see happening is the movement from the old covenant to the new covenant understanding of our relationship with God by the Spirit showing us the glory and beauty of Christ. So already we see the gospel breaking through uh, as it begins to run like a lion through the ancient Near East at this time. And so it's a beautiful pattern and picture of that glory. That salvation has never been by what we could accomplish. Pam and I attended a um, bat mitzvah. That's for girls, right? Bat, bat mitzvah. Uh, and this was in a church in Henderson, or a synagogue in Henderson, not a church. We were invited, and so we went uh, to experience it and see it and watch it. And what struck me about that particular bat mitzvah was, number one, I loved all the scripture. There was lots of Old Testament scripture used in that. And uh, great Old Testament scripture, and lots of the songs, lots of singing. But there came a point in the service where they took the Torah out of the sealed cabinets behind the pulpit area. They brought it out and they laid it and then a couple of people took it and they paraded it around the auditorium, the Torah. And people bowed and, you know, touched it and some were kissing it. And uh, I, I sat there and watched that dumbfounded. I didn't do anything. They did invite Gentiles to come up front and look at it, which I did do. I went up front and I looked at the Torah that they had. But those people responded to the Torah in exactly the same way that we respond to Jesus. They celebrated Torah. We celebrate Christ. And that's what Pentecost and the inauguration of the new covenant, the inauguration of the new age and the new creation is all about. If you want to see what happened on Pentecost, read Revelation 22 and see all of the, these things talking about the new people of God, the new creation, the new covenant, um, all being new, finally in a fulfilled state, here in an already but not yet state, that's what's going on. And so Pentecost is one of those unique, redemptive, historical events that we feel the echoes and repercussions of even now. Even now, the Spirit of God, God is working in our midst. The Spirit of God is working in our lives. And He is faithful to do it. But what I notice that, you know, when I open the message by saying, how do you know you're in a Spirit-filled church? Because people are praising what? Who? Jesus. They're not praising the Spirit. They're not caught up in the so-called gifts of the Spirit. They are praising Jesus. They are speaking of the mighty wonders of God with joy. That 
is spirit-filled speaking and preaching and spirit-filled worship is making much of Jesus. That's what we see on the day of Pentecost. And that is how the gospel moved out from Jerusalem to go ultimately to the ends of the earth. Now, <laughs> as um, we always know, God's plans seem to have a wonderful start till people get involved. And then when people get involved, we're going to see all kinds of deviation and God correcting it because God's going to get his work done. He's going to get his work done. He is, and that is our great hope. And that gives me confidence and boldness in preaching his gospel because I know, finally, and I'll close with this, I know that I can preach till I'm blue in the face. I know that I, I remember when I first started learning how to preach, I would write myself little notes on the sermon because I would listen to the tapes and just like want to throw up every day after listening to myself preach. I couldn't stand my voice. I couldn't stand anything about it. But I would write down and what I tended to do when I was a young preacher is I would start off really loud, really fast, and had nowhere to go. You know what I mean? I mean, you can only go so loud and so fast so long. So I'd write on my little sermons, slow down. You don't have to hurry. Take your time. And I'd write in the margins about how I would run letters together or missay words or, you know, make mistakes. And I would carefully write and I would criticize all my sermons and I'd take them home. And I would obsess over that until one day I was reading, it might have been one of the Puritans, and I began to understand that try as I might, doing the best I could possibly do, delivering the best sermon that I've ever delivered, unless the Spirit of God was breathed upon that message, and unless the Spirit of God prepared the hearts of those who were hearing, unless the Spirit of God softened those hardened hearts, nothing was going to penetrate. And that made me so relieved. Because I was works righteous in myself to death. Righteousnessing, that's coined a new term here. Myself to death trying to get it right because I didn't want to have to stand before God and answer for that crummy preaching I was listening for. But the gospel liberated me to understand the Holy Spirit is the one who saves people. It, he uses our arguments. He uses our efforts, puny though they may be, motive messed up as they may be, uh, inarticulate as they may be, God uses it. He can make a, a straight line with a crooked stick. But what gave me great relief, and what should give you great relief, to speak the, of the wonders of God before uh, people you know, is that in some cases the Spirit of God is going to use that. In some cases the Spirit, you never know who it will be. You never know who it will be. You will be shocked at some of the ones who may respond. So go out, get out, and speak of the mighty wonders of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great redemptive historical event called Pentecost. And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we all know that but for the Spirit's work in us, we would perish in a moment. We would walk away from you. We would never care for you. We'd never read our Bibles. We would never pray. We would never want anything to do with you. But we're so glad that you are so compassionate and so gracious and so filled with mercy that you took away our heart of stone 
and you gave us a heart of flesh, and that you are writing your law upon our heart. You are sanctifying us internally by your Spirit as you renew us daily. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may you bless us in ways we don't even understand or know, so that we may be careful to give glory to the one who alone is worthy, our Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.